Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio doing a follow-up episode of part two with the Reverend, the Dr. Michael Berg. Um, and we are going to be continuing on, following on our episode uh, last time, uh, where we discussed the traditional or Tridentin Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo Mass and kind of the uh, Roman Catholic worship wars that have been going on. And as part of that, we introduced some um, some documents that have recently been issued by the Vatican and by Pope Francis. Um, the first, a motu proprio, which is um, like a directions to the bishops for how to handle stuff regarding essentially the Tridentine or traditional Latin Mass and kind of trying to, to rein it in. It appears Pope Francis is getting a little worried that there can be division in the church because of these worship wars that are developing. Um, and then following that, he issued an, an apostolic letter, which is an official important thing. It's not like a same level as like Ex an encyclical. Or, yeah, and it's not infallible or anything. Um, but one that Mike and I found to be... Are you are you saying that if it was ex cathedra, it would be infallible, Wade? Is that what you're saying? That's Well, for the Roman Catholics, it's being written for. Okay. Right. I just want to make sure. Yeah. I just want to make sure what team you're playing for. No, if he's issuing it that way, then yes, it's not just like... Bishops, please do this. Right. Then it's like this is now that would be in faith and mor morals, and it's very rare. But it's not even encyclical yeah, okay. uh, level is what I, the main thing I'm getting at. Desiderio desideravi. Yes, very good. <laughs> and uh, and so to the bishops, priests, and deacons, to consecrated men and women, and to the lay faithful on the liturgical formation of the people of God. And Mike and I both thought this was a surprisingly good. And you know what? If we have someone who stumbles upon this podcast and they are a big fan of the traditional Latin Mass and the, the TLM movement, this is probably going to be an indictment of it to them that they'll say, see, the Lutherans like it. We yeah. knew it was bad. And also we, we are not very credible because we mispronounce things. Yeah. I Novus Ordo is the new order of service from the 1960s. In the previous episode, I would slip Novus Ordo, I think I heard this. Novus Ordo. Right. To be fair, Michael and I both have had a lot of Latin as part of our schooling. <laughs> Mike, you had it in high school already, yes? yes? Yeah. Um, I had it all through college. Just, we had to do stuff with Latin in just seminary. Just mispronounced it. Right. Um, but I the pronunciation, especially when we're trying to do it quickly, and to be fair... Um, we don't care. Yeah, it's not that big a deal to us, and uh, the pronunciation that is. And also, like, there's just some things that people pronounce... Like, are we doing ecclesiastical Latin? Are we doing classical? So if you want to dismiss a point we make because we mispronounce, um, go ahead. It's a podcast, man. But um, so we, at, at the um, I would say in the second half of the main topic, we'll get into the especially the Desiderio Desideravi by Francis, um, Bishop of Rome, Roman Catholic Bishop of Rome. And uh, at the beginning part, Michael especially will lead the discussion of hitting more on why this matters. If you didn't listen to the previous episode, that's all right. But if you want to go back and listen, um, that is not a bad idea. Yeah, I maybe think, I think it's one that it's good to listen to that first. All right. yeah. But um, that actually is episode 200. Okay. So we didn't um, do... I didn't get you anything for our anniversary. Yeah, and we were talking about maybe doing something special um, for the... Uh, the 200th episode but in classic let the bird fly we did not and uh, we, uh just didn't and care on top of it we, do it we basically did roman catholic theology <laughs> yeah 
Um, but you know what? That's what we do. We we let the bird fly. We are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. Go to 1517.org. You can find out all the good stuff going there, blog posts for devotions, uh, academy courses for free, publishing house, you name it, they have it. Conference coming up in San Diego. Mike will be heading out there as will I with our, our lovely wives. Um, and with that, we're not going to have a free-for-all. We're going to jump into the main topic. But before we do, because there will be issues of pronunciation, we, we may say something that people don't like depending on where they fall on the Roman Catholic worship wars. I know this is a very important topic to most of our listeners, um, our Roman Catholic worship wars. Uh, so we better make sure not to forget, if you don't mind, Michael, the disclaimer. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. going to be talking about uh, what we have dubbed Roman Catholic worship wars. That is us saying this, right? We who have come from the Lutheran background and a larger Protestant background who had the so-called Lutheran wars, which were um, pathetic. Is that a good word? Can I just say that? Like, it was kind of like two sides arguing about things that neither of them really knew about usually boiled down to tradition or contemporary, which really didn't have anything to do with the main issue. Anyway, um, we have... Even though, you know, the fun part is everything comes with tradition. Like the new forms, contemporary, was just basically from the Baptistic or American evangelical tradition, while like the, um, uh, uh, what did you say, tradition or what was it? Contemporary. Oh, yeah, and while at the the same time... um, Everything you know, the 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 Western right is always at the same time contemporary because it's being done and applied in the present day. It, it was a little, you know, and for us, these were during formative years for us uh, through, for me in the in the Lutheran Church in the pew, but then also high school, college, and seminary. And it, it's one of those when you finally, it's like when you're like twelve or thirteen years old and you realize your parents aren't as smart as you think they are. That was kind of like, mm, I'm not sure that this these people who are, are fighting this really actually know what's going on. In the Roman Catholic Church, you have a similar thing that happens at a similar time, and that was the large thesis of our uh, pa- podcast episode last time. Uh, you have the, the TLM, the Latin Mass, or the Tridentine Mass, uh, named after the Council of Trent in the, in the late 1500s. And then you have the Novus Ordo, which is the new order of service, which came out of Vatican II, the 1960s. Now, just a brief sketch again. So you have quite a few different orders of service that develop naturally and organically over time in the Western Church. 
And uh, there was a fair amount of variety going on. But when I mean variety, I don't mean the variety of like today's where you can go to one church and they, you can just tell the pastor made it up the night before. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's just song, couple psalm sentences that go back and forth, song, 45-minute sermon, uh, another, another song. We're not talking about that. There are basics there. There's a, there's develops a creed, the Kyrie eleison. It's more kind of like confession. let's say there's a rock song, and you have um, you know like Guns and Roses back in the day had Slash. Wait, was that his name Slash? Okay, and so you have the basic structure of the song, <laughs> but there's parts where in it where the guitarist may do something different. Now, this was not an individualist guitarist, no. whatever. But you had local developments yep. where within that song or the framework, people riffed differently. Or maybe the Lord's Prayer was in a different position or right. something like that. If you look at uh, uh, what's interesting. Same concert, but a different yeah. set list. Like uh, Martin Chemnitz will say, he'll even go so far, I don't have the right words off the top of my head, but like these are the non-negotiables, the creed, the sermon, Holy Communion, uh, Kyrie, those kinds of things. Uh, think of um, what we have as ordinaries and propers. Like ordinaries would be, uh, you, they're always there. So the glory and excelsis, uh, the gospel reading, the offertory, those kinds of things generally don't change. And then you have, or sometimes the offertory would, then you have propers that would be proper to the day. The, the, the reading changes, this week it's from Genesis 2, next week it will be from Habakkuk. Yeah. Um, Which is not much different than, let's say, a baseball game. There's going to be nine innings, three yep. outs in each inning, but the pitchers and the fielders, the score, right, things will change within the framework mm-hmm. of the nine and the three. There's going to be a seventh inning stretch, mm-hmm. right? There will be certain things that are always similar. And so this is all fine. There are attempts to standardize things for, I, I think, good reasons uh, that if I'm traveling, and I want to find a Catholic church, and what we mean by Catholic in the West at this point is the true universal church rather than, let's say, some parish that had been infected by uh, 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 Arius. Arius is teaching that Jesus wasn't uh, truly, truly uh, divine. And so you could, you could, you could tell, I, I know that they have, if they're gonna say the creed without crossing their fingers, I know that I'm in a good place. And so this, may come down um, as you have to do this and we allow this and don't allow this from our point of view as draconian, uh, taking away our freedom. Uh, There was some shepherd care that was going on here, but there was a a lot of variety. Post-Reformation, you're going to have a counter-Reformation. And again, the Reformation of the Catholic Church was largely a moral Reformation where the Reformation of the Lutheran Church was going to be um, that, that we now call the Lutheran Reformation was going to be a theological reformation. So one of the ways, and I think ingeniously, was if you, if you dictate what worship is, you are going to dictate what people are going to believe because of the, the principle of lex orandi, lex credendi. And the, the law of prayer and the law of belief, yeah. right? What you practice affects what you believe, and what you believe, hopefully, and vice versa, shapes yes. what you practice. So what, and this is to the point of why I get so irritated about the contemporary versus traditional. What you do is going to be handed down, so therefore it is a tradition, and it is not neutral. It will always tell you what you believe, and it's going to affect the people 
uh, uh, what they believe in the pews. Mm -hmm. So they're going to, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent is going to say, this is what the Mass is, and there's going to be very little deviation from it. There'll be exceptions, local customs, stuff like that, but there's going to be very little comparative deviation from that for 400 years. Which, and, is, which is amazing. <laughs> and like utterly amazing, and then also it's going to be in Latin, which safeguards, from their point of view, the doctrine, right? And and before you say, oh, those, you know, everything's Latin, they don't care about the, the people and their vernacular, well, that is a healthy criticism. What they're saying is once you start translating stuff into a different language, there is the the opportunity for false doctrine to get in. We had these debates in yep. our synod as well. Yep, and I was going to say, if Lutherans think that's silly or get perturbed by that, um, Wisconsin and Missouri Synod Lutherans need to read uh, some materials that came out of our church bodies in the 1880s, 1890s, 1910s. If you go um, from German to English, you will. About the move from German yeah. to English. You yeah. will lose. And, and it's a fair warning, but to say that we cannot have truth in a different language is ludicrous. Right. And also, you're fighting against the proclamation of the gospel to people in their own language. So if your uh, great-grandparents were, even if you're my age and your grandparents were Roman Catholic, they would have grown up with the Latin Mass. Uh, our parents would have grown up with the Latin Mass, mine not being Roman Catholic, <coughs> but your, your father being Roman Catholic right. remembers some of this stuff. Um, I can remember watching an episode of Blue Bloods and the, uh, the Tom Selleck's character is... Reminiscing about the Latin Mass, how he misses it. Anyway. Well, and there's, um, I didn't know all three were, but I guess all three of the the late night hosts, the um, Jimmy Kimmel, mm -hmm. Jimmy Fallon, and Stephen Colbert are, are all Catholic, mm -hmm. at least were raised Catholic. But there's an interesting thing where Jimmy Fallon gets asked about going to Mass, and um, he said, you know, he kind of got out to L.A. or whatever, yeah. and everything was kind of this happy clappy felt banner whatever and he missed the old latin mass you know and the nuns mm -hmm. etc now this could be just making an excuse for not going to mass yeah. um, but i think there is something too and yeah. I, I to put the best construction there are there is a, a legitimate nostalgia among some and it's maybe maybe they attach it to the latin and it's not always necessary the latin but for the reverence and the mystique that was around it and to be fair almost all of us what we experience in our formative years, in our youth, sticks with us as some sort of barometer for what is like the best or most yeah. legitimate expression of the faith. And I know exactly the, the article you're talking about, and, and he was struggling in California, and, and his, he was actually made a pretty decent theological point. It's like, I don't need this fluff. Like, I didn't go to church for fluff. Give me some good stuff. Right. Now, he probably would have grown up with the Novus Ordo, but there would have been probably traditions that have been, yeah. What he means is, I don't want the fluff I want. And this is... Church was, unquote church as he thought yeah. church should be. And this is a good segue because the Novus Ordo, when if, if we from, from a Lutheran point of view would look at it and, and hear people complaining that it's too contemporary, we would be like, what are you talking about? It has all of the, the parts and these big long prayers. In fact, the and Novus... And some of them that are older than what's yeah. in the TLM. So the Novus Ordo is going to have the Mass that is going to have its roots all the way through the church, and I would argue much of it into the biblical 
biblical uh, testimony. Bill Murray is another one who has said the same thing yeah. as Jimmy Fallon, although I think he's still a regular mass score. Yeah, and I don't mean that that I'm talking about this is how Isaiah worshipped or Jesus worshipped, although actually some of it, it, it will be very familiar, but I'm saying the Kyrie is found in the Bible. The glory is found in the Bible. Right. So, <clears throat> Sanctus, Agnus yeah. Dei. So the Novus Ordo, what is the difference then? I, I think the big beef is that you have kind of an unwieldy priest can do a polka mass, um, can kind of have this crazy freedom, and it becomes cheapened. Um, and uh, it becomes about the personality of the person, that stuff. Or sh the shtick for it's the moment. Shtick. It's a shtick, right? It's look at me kind of thing. So, and anybody who's been to a Protestant, enough Protestant services know exactly what we're talking about, right? This person is going to be sloppy as they preside. Um, there's going to be some unfortunate attempts at jokes. Um, there's going to be like the overly emotive lady who does always from the front when they do the responsive songs and then I'll let you describe this gesture, but um, when it's like the congregation's time to kind of pathetically sing the refrain, she does a... Yeah. Like there's a, there's a, I don't know what that is with your arm. Almost like you're like releasing doves, yes. with, but just with one arm. Yeah. Uh, it, this is going to be, uh, we'll get to this in a second, the work of the people as in look at me, I can read the, I can read the first lesson. And I was thinking that something <clears throat> later I'd really like us to talk about is what we mean, because we can legitimately talk about the liturgy as mm -hmm. a work or the work of the people, mm -hmm. but I think it'd be a d good discussion of what we mean by that, yeah. because we had, in our own background, that is an aspect that was emphasized, and and it's right that it's an aspect, but I think sometimes what people understand by that yeah. is very Western, American, individualistic, um, and like self-expressive, yeah. and not nearly as much as what historically it has yeah. meant. And there's a connection there to the sacrifice of the Mass, I'm convinced, too. So, okay, what is the difference then between this Novus Ordo, the new Ordo? Are we for or against that, by the way? I forgot where we're at. The what? Like, where are we at right now on that sacrifice yeah. of the Mass? Okay. I'm gonna, we're going to come back to it. We'll okay. vote, yeah. I'm going to give you three options, and one of them is correct. Oh, wait. I, well, There'll be a quiz. It's correct according to Lutheran theology or it, Roman it, Catholic theology? It's going to be three options and explanations of the sacrifice of the Mass, mm -hmm. and I'm going to give you three options. And you will see if you are a Lutheran or not. Okay. Um, I don't know anymore if I am. Yeah. Now, um, <clears throat> so the Novus Ordo is uh, going to have some of the same texts. They're going to be cut down. There's not going to be prayer upon prayer upon prayer. Now, when you're thinking about the medieval mass, the way I describe it to, to the kids in a very brief way is like, think of like a ball of tinfoil. So you have the core there. It's going to be uh, the word in the meal. Uh, those are non-negotiables, the creed, the sermon, that kind of stuff. And then during the medieval church, you keep adding tinfoil, and it becomes this huge ball. There's so much going on, and some of it's beautiful, some of it's fantastic. If you understand, it's great. But you lose the core a little bit. There's, there's just, uh, and some would even call it a period of liturgical deterioration. So there is a cutback down on that. Uh, another thing about the Novus Ordo is it going to allow more vernacular, so the, the, the language of the people. Um, a big thing, if you're going, uh, maybe some small things before a big thing. Um, blue, at the same time, um, blue becomes a standard Advent color instead of just the color of Mary. Um, 
you are going to have um, a little bit more freedom when it comes to uh, musical settings, although there was different settings, of course. Um, but the big one that you would notice right away is um, ad populum or ad orientum. So to, ad, to the east, liturgical east, that would be to the altar, because you're looking towards Jerusalem, because that's where Jesus is going to come. So your buildings often were oriented to the east, orient meaning east, um, even if, you're, if you're, you're, your church is not facing gonna, east, we call it liturgical east. He's going to rise like the sun. sun right. Um, so, and so that there, would be in the east. Some and, churches will have where the casket even gets placed. Yeah. So the feet are facing. So like if Jesus returned during the funeral service. You'd be faced. Boom, or you're buried, that, you're buried that way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, it goes one of two ways. Some people will say, well, he rises from the east, so you're always east. Some people will think, well, we're in the west, so we're going to be towards east, kind of like Mecca. It, it, yeah, it, and it's not it, not a Mecca thing, is not no. the emphasis. But like you're going to be you're going to be facing the right way when Jesus comes. That's a symbol of what of 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 this is. If I'm facing the wrong way, I think it'd be pretty cool to do like a spin move though. Like so, <laughs> so like I pop up, and then I just whoo, yeah. do a little spin. You just got to know what to do. Yeah, I, you have to know that before you die. Am I am I uh, am I facing? Am I occidental or oriental? I'm gonna try to think this through every night before I go to bed. So hopefully it's like captured you know. in my now my memory. So think about it, it's a it's a symbolic reminder of Jesus' second coming. Whatever the um, the Novus Ordo mandated that you treat the altar like a table. So if you go to a church that was built in the 1950 early 1960s probably even even late 1960s sometimes earlier they're going to probably have two altars they're going to have a high altar which is the back up against the wall and then you're going to usually have, the beautiful one and then you're going to have a table where the priest is going to sometimes face the table as if it was an altar and praying to God but then during holy communion is going to walk around and treat the altar as a table right and which, inviting people up which in I see more in Lutheranism and Roman Catholicism almost everything in Nova Soto now is going to be either done from the side, mm-hmm. so um, the opening blessing prayer, yeah. and then behind. Lutherans have kind of latched on more to the front. front thing, yeah. So if we have Roman Catholic listeners, they might go, well, I haven't seen that that much. But the, the, the same thought is behind it. When the priest is behind or the Lutheran pastor, it's when it's becoming like Eucharistic. This is a host setting. And there are some, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there are some that are allowed to then face the alt, face the table as an altar in front. Um, it, this is this is why I don't like right. the table because you, it becomes very confusing. yeah. There's been especially, um, I think, with Benedict, but, but even before um, some that were allowed now to celebrate ad orientum, yep. like the basilica sometimes will do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, I think I think that's meant to be like a half measure behind between. That would be Roman Catholic blended worship, <laughs> um, to where it's not full TLM. You're not going to do. Ever, you're still doing the Novus Ordo, but you're, you're you're taking some the same as Vatican II thought in the Novus Ordo. Novus Ordo, certain uh, parts of the liturgy of the um, ought to be retained in Latin and with Gregorian chant when with possible. And you're getting more churches now that will sing the Kyrie in the Greek mm-hmm. um, or the Sanctus or the Agnus Dei 
holy, 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 or mm-hmm. oh, Christ, Lamb of God, in the Latin. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's I think that's a way of, like, trying to um, ha- have a moderating position. And either way, the altar, whether it be a table or an altar primarily in the mind of the people, is still the symbol of Christ. You're still going to bow towards it, genuflect towards it. You would kiss it. Those kinds of things are still going to be a part of it. So uh, that's probably the, the most lasting visible, besides the vernacular, of the, the Novus Ordo. We can get into the weeds of like which text was moved, which text was changed, which text right. was dropped. But from our, for, for our purpose here and from our Lutheran point of view, uh, it's probably not, it doesn't change any major doctrine. It's more of kind of a narrowing it down, generally speaking. And even if Mike and I, let's take the facing the altar or not, where Mike and I both kind of favor um, the, now when I say traditional altar, I mean how most Lutheran churches would have originally had it. If you go back to like a St. Augustine and you read some of the accounts of things that happened during the Mass when he's, he's probably was was facing the people, right? The altar was probably pushed up. So that's an old practice too. But I think Mike and I kind of both would favor ad orientum, I think we've said. But like the reasons we would both give would not be something that doing that or not doing it um, changes our doctrine. It would be what we think, we we like what doing it that way confesses Mm -hmm. about. But the other thing can confess important aspects too. And, And on that issue, we're at odds with Luther who had pretty good reasons for Advocating yeah. ad populum. And I think uh, what maybe our biggest concern, at least my biggest concern, is when you don't do it thoughtfully, then it just becomes, <coughs> when you're going to do it, do it thoughtfully. Right. Right. So, I mean, I can remember a church preaching in a church where the, the altar was treated as a table like your kitchen table at home. There was bulletins there from three weeks ago. A there coffee was, mug, maybe. There was just, yeah, you could see that this was treated like an old oak table at grandma's farmhouse, right? And I think you miss something. Like, don't have an altar then. If you're not going to, if you're not going to have a symbol and use the symbol, then don't do it. Right. Right. Um, that says something about your theology, I would suggest, or at least um, is going to say something to to the people about your theology, whether you mean it or not. Um, but if you're if you're not going to, there's so many things like if you're going to use the symbol, just do it right. Right. Like yeah. uh, otherwise, you're just going through empty motions. And the altar is not exactly one where you can't you, say like, oh, there's no inherent symbolism to it. The altar literally is drawn from the Old Testament right. where sacrifice was offered. And whether one holds to the Roman Catholic position of the sacrifice of the Mass or to the Lutheran emphasis on the sacramental nature of what's taking mm-hmm. place, um, for Lutherans, the altar still rec- represents the sacrifice of Christ right. made once and for all. So it's not, it's not like... You could maybe say, oh, the triangle, that's a symbol that was used for the Trinity, but the triangle is not inherently Trinitarian. The altar would not exist if it weren't for what it's meant to reflect. And quite frankly, you don't, you don't have the authority to go back in history and erase people's mind. Mm-hmm. It is a symbol of that. I you wish I could, though. Yeah, you don't get a choice of that, right? Like, um, if you could go back in history and erase one person's mind at one moment. You only get one. Don't, don't do any like, oh, you know, Adam and Eve or whatever. I'm talking like post-biblical. What would you erase? Whose mind? Whose mind at what moment would you erase? This is a good free-for-all. 
Like one idea that you could erase. Yeah. Oh, wait, are you permanently erasing the idea? You're you, erasing it from that person's mind. Because you could make it worse that they well, forget something. You could, you're, you're, erasing, you're erasing Karl Marx's ability to write the manifesto. You are erasing somebody's. Well, mind. I was going more personal, like that one friend or girlfriend who maybe that, that could be knew something that's, about that's me that. I'd... Although I would suggest, if you had that chance, you would go a little bit bigger than just vengeance for your personal. Game. No, not vengeance. Uh, like something uh, I'm embarrassed about uh, that I could be I, like, you know, I did something embarrassing and then. But we'll come back to that. Yeah. All right. Um, Matt Millen. Yeah, I was going to say there's a lot of sports. Like, would you? Yeah. Like whatever. Henry Clay Ford's whatever convinced him to hire Matt Millen. Yeah. Erase, erase the memory of Matt Millen from the Ford family. Or just erase like Matt Millen's mind of everything. He went in thinking he knew about football. <laughs> and then maybe he'd just listen to people. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, we're, up, we're, we're getting That's into right. the weeds. This is a free-for-all to do, though. Yeah. Novus Ordo. The new Ordo, right? Think. Freestanding altar. Think vernacular. Think maybe a little bit more uh, musical freedom. The priestly vestments um, change a little. Yeah, think there's there's a couple other there's quite a few other little things. A uh, 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 maybe cutting down on some of the removal of prayers, some of the prayers or whatever. Um, but I it w- shouldn't be always associated with Novus Ordo, but it essentially has become part of people's experience of it. Would also be extraordinary ministries ministers. Mm-hmm. So lay readers yep. and lay people giving out communion, which the fact that they were supposed to be extraordinary ministers, meaning outside of ordinary, like when we're really in a jam, yeah. but they've become almost synonymous in many people's minds with the celebration of the Norvis Ordo. So we can include it as something people associate with it, but to be fair, we can also say yep. that's not really what was intended. And I would suggest that this is a good segue to the work of the people, that this in the Lutheran church really did not come from a egalitarian, Protestant, everybody's a minister idea. It probably really came from the, from the zeitgeist out of, of Vatican II, where it was a big deal, like, if you could be a lay reader, right? I mean, I can remember going to somebody's church because this person was going to have their opportunity to lay. Like, I went to church because to this particular parish, I want to say why we're there other than to say, because this lady was going to read the first lesson. And she just jumped up for joy and was giggling and laughing, and she was just overcome with this just wonderful thing. It became about her. It's kind of like with weddings. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, someone's like, well, can my cousin read? I was just saying, no. Like, A, like your your cousin probably doesn't read that well. Because I've heard enough people that just get up and read and they haven't Mm -hmm. practiced, Mm -hmm. and then they get like a Bible word. And, and like, B, it's why. Yeah. Like, will will the word of God be better? Yeah. Or more effective if your this is just if your cousin reads it. This is a a motive thing, as you said. This is I'm honoring somebody else. It is. Do I not read well enough? Yeah, that's, that's what right. everyone wants to say. Um, and sometimes I don't. Yeah, but you get you get. Like I remember point. one time with Isaiah, I messed up and I said that the angel took a a thong from the altar. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, I've, I'll mix up those words. Yeah, that too. Yeah, and it was unfortunately right around the the time of a, uh, the thong song. Oh boy! And so then, right in my head, yeah. this terrible song, right. which I don't endorse, yeah. um, but it. 
happens. Mm-hmm. It happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so the work of the people. Um, I don't. Know. I would tell you about when a a couple wanted to have their walk in or walk out song be a air on a G string, and I said no because I didn't realize that was Bach. Yeah, I thought it was like a rock song. You so thought I'm it was like, like. I'm like, well, we'll have to talk about it more. Like, who song. is this by? Yeah. And I was expecting it to be by like Motley Crue or yeah. something, and then it turns out it's like a traditional classical piece. That's uh. My mind is just. I'm glad I I doesn't that sound like a late '80s rock song though? I applaud you. Like, air guitar. Yeah, on I applaud you for admitting that, in public. Yeah. yeah. I would erase their mind, but now I've put it out yeah. into everybody's mind. Now that you're, the fact that you didn't know that, but also be that that's where your mm-hmm. mind. Oh went, yeah, I immediately instead thought instead of like this is note, a very inappropriate song. Instead of the church. note G. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the work of the people, uh, the sacrifice of the mass developed over time to this idea that the people through the priest are going to participate in the sacrifice of Christ. And in fact, Christ is sacrificed in a non-bloody way in Holy Communion. This sacrifice of us through Christ who sanctifies us is pleasing to the Father. So I'm coming to the presence of God and he is going to be pleased with me. Why? Because of what Christ did. They're going to say because of what Christ did. But I'm, sa- I'm sacrificing this. In the medieval church, you could understand with a heavy emphasis of a transactional towards relationship with God. I go there. I do this. This is my sacrifice to God. I get a check mark by my name. I hear the sanctus bells. I'm all good. The work of the people, I believe, flows naturally out of that that they are participants not just through the priest in the canon of the mass but the whole liturgical thing is going to be the work of the people and the priest but still it's oriented towards god and peter brown has written very well on this and he he locates especially the shift um so after the time of saint augustine but we're definitely in late antiquity um Rome in the West is crumbling. Everyone's kind of aware of it. Um, so that at Augustine's time, the big moment was still the moment when the laity brought the gifts to mm-hmm. be used in the celebration of the sacrament. And <clears throat> there's like some pretty good accounts of Augustine, the crowd turning on Augustine because yeah. he's like preaching against the games and this being a tense moment. Um, but then as you have more and more wealthy Christians locally um, who become Christians, uh, this trans- so you have fewer people doing more of the giving, but doing it in a way that they think, this is going to get me right with God. Mm-hmm. And so these gifts start to be given, and they're attached with language that's tied to the forgiveness of sins, which is supposed to be a, a free gift. <clears throat> but you also have, with monasticism and the kind of professionalizing and monasticizing of the clergy, so more and more clergy are expected to be um, celibate because, right, they're the holy ideal. They're supposed to be other than the people. The emphasis becomes on what the priest is offering rather than on what the laity is bringing, which is a breakdown of the communal. And I think, as you're saying, Mike, of, of I would say, the New Testament, the biblical. This was even in the Old Testament, the sacrifices the people brought, right, the and then the Levites offered what the people brought. But we get this shift, which then only becomes more transactional with the onset of what we would call the early Middle Ages, 
um, and this growing emphasis in Latin theology um, of uh, of the priest becoming mediator in a way that Luther will react against, right, when the Reformation comes. And I think Vatican II is trying to fix that, but they're still going to maintain this idea that the that the 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 laity are a part of this process. Right. Let's let's give the laity a little bit more. So Which was a big moment growing up. If your family or for a school mass you were selected to bring the gifts forward, um, you know, after the what was it after the offering, and you would bring the cruets with the mm-hmm. the water and wine, and then a, I can't remember if we brought any hosts or whatever. <clears throat> Anyways, we carried something, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was a big moment. And you would notice in the mass the family that was doing it. I, I have to say I've not noticed as much emphasis on that, or even that regularly happening, in a lot of the Norfolk Order masses that I've gone to now. So, this phrase, "the liturgy is the work of the people," does get co-opted in our circles. I'm not sure with maybe the theological thought or explanation. I'm not... The, the phrase is fine if you eliminate some of the baggage. For a Protestant ears who is not going to consider I'm doing this for God, this becomes about... Although Protestants can pretty easily fall into <laughs> that. Uh, they're going to be thinking... They're not thinking they're Holy Communion, right, bringing up offerings, right? Okay, yeah. Um, I'm not bringing the lamb to the altar to be sacrificed kind of thing. Um, this is going to be, it's still, it's still I'm doing something. Right. But it's going to be, I get to do the Michael reading. Michael is smiling in a way that, I mean, he gets what I'm yeah. getting at. Of, um, of, of we easily, because like, right. there will be, like, sometimes when you're like, maybe this isn't the best practice, but it's something that people have done, and then... Well, this is how I worship the Lord. Yeah, and, and, and it can become. And as a pastor, you don't want to hurt someone's feelings and this kind of thing. We'll complain about oh, the family brings up the the, the offering to 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 the altar. Well, look at the stained glass of every German church. There's the family name on there. Right. Right. So, <coughs> as somebody would say more crudely, your poop stinks too. The Catholics are saying the Protestants. The number two, your number two stinks too. All right, now. So I apologize to our (laughs) listeners who had children. The work of the people then, from a Lutheran point of view, was like, was like, yeah, it's not about the priests; it's about the people and these pastors, and they have to do everything, that kind of thing. And I get to be charitable. What we're after is we want all the gifts of the laity. Like we want. Um, you know, if we, if you have a violinist in the congregation, you want to make use of that. You want to do these things. This is, this is not something you come to see. This is something that you participate in. And, and this gets conflated to too with, like when Luther talked about the priesthood of all believers, what Luther didn't mean is, well, everyone's a minister. Yeah, yeah. What he meant is you don't have to go through priest as mediator. Yeah. Um, the laity were a priesthood even in the Old Testament when there was priests. We forget that. Right. Um, but the, both of those, the kind of the um, priesthood of all believers and this, the work of the people can get um, morphed into something that is not what was, yeah. was meant by that. To be, uh, let, me, let me summarize and then make one point. And then it's we'll not to... saying that the divine service is like your grade school musical 
where even if you couldn't sing, everyone had a part. Maybe you were just a tree. And then where everybody feels good about themselves. But, but everybody got to have their moment. Yeah. So charitably, the work of the people, yes, it's not something that you are, you go to observe. It's not an ex opera operata thing that just happens outside of you having faith. You participate in this. You're not entirely passive. Yeah. <clears throat> but to be careful with those words is that it just not does not become about my show or that somehow this is the sacrifice I make to God. Ironically, ironically, when we move into more away contemporary music and we move away from like the organ and stuff like that, which I'm not saying the organ was this divinely mandated whatever. However, so I'm just gonna say know. I'm just gonna say it. Just because your dreams of becoming a rock star ended in your early 20s does not mean that Sunday morning is now fulfilling some deep hole in your soul. This like, is not a gig. So my kids have played a lot of ball, and there's like yeah. a there's like club ball, and then there will be like the y- local youth stuff. And I think club ball can be wonderful but also very unhealthy. Right. The church shouldn't be like club ball, totally exclusive, whatever. But it also shouldn't be like the local local youth league where the people who couldn't make club ball but still really want to play ball can play ball gets a poorly. Yeah. Yeah. So all of us had have dreams. Mm-hmm. Um but uh who didn't want to be a rock star? Right. Who didn't want to unplug and and have a little acoustic little Maybe you wanted to be a motivational speaker. Yeah. You know? Well, you know. Anyway. An artist. So what I'm saying is when we moved away from organ and and started getting uh, and again, I'm not saying organ this is this is the be all and the end all. I'm just saying generally the move from a The whole group sings this type of song because we can all do it Mm -hmm. generally well, even if we're not all singing in four parts. When you move towards more uh, songs that are, let's say, informed by mid-century rock and roll, that the irony is that the laity is now pushed away from participating in the music and the service because A, the songs are too hard, right? It's not right. what I can expect. Or they think they're lame and they don't want to sing. <clears throat> well, that, well, yes. Um, <laughs> needs to be said, right? But also the general vibe is that this is entertainment. So the irony of the work of the people and the contemporary Christian music scene, and I'm thinking 80s, 90s, early 2000s, produced the exact opposite of the intention, at least on this one point. And we see connected with that in Roman Catholicism what we saw in a lot of Protestantism, that those then performing, and I'm using air quotes, mm-hmm. moved from the balcony in the back, mm-hmm. where the, the organist and the choir usually was. You would not, yeah. To the front. And we see that with the Novus Ordo of... The, so the cantor with the psalms is going to be the emotive lady that's up front so that she can do the releasing the doves mm-hmm. 
arm thing, right? Um, it uh, because when it's a sh- when there's a show, you want to see yep. the people. Yep. Yep. Um, and Francis wh- will point out that that became a temptation for the presiding clergy yes. as well as their role in the Novus Ordo became, we might say, more front-facing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say this as someone who is very tempted anytime I'm put in front of people. Uh, to lose focus on what I'm there for mm-hmm. and to become to a personality. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. There was temptation for the clergy then, too. Yeah. Um, ironically, that very temptation, um, he also says, can up- come up in the Tridentine or the traditional Latin Mass, because now you're the guy wearing all the right things, doing everything exactly right, and you're the one who gets to whisper your Latin like this and then do the little motions, and I'm going to do seven of these and six of these, and everybody's just passively watching you. And this I, this happened in the Lutheran Church, and it's happening in the Lutheran Church right now, and that was the main thrust of our episode last time. Okay, so option number one with the sacrifice of the math is just... Flat out through. You just said sacrifice of the math. Sacrifice of the math. Sacrifice the math. Flat out, you are in a non bloody way re sacrificing Jesus Christ. You are connected to the sacrifice through the priest. The other option is more of a vague, this is the work of the people, but it's still my sacrifice to to God. We can see Protestants falling into that with uh, the the subject of worship is the I or the we. Right. The third option with the sacrifice. Lord, of the I mass. lift your name on high. The sa- both of us like bum, to say bum, that bum, bum, if all bum, of your hymns bum, start with I, there's a problem. Yes. Unless they're written by Paul Gerhardt. Yeah. Which is a sweet spot. Right. Before you Jason and I talked about that in the hymns episode, so don't worry, we covered it. Good. Then the third option with this idea of sacrifice of the mass is that it God flips it upside down and you don't owe him anything but faith, as Luther would say, and he doesn't want your stupid stuff anyway. So what is the divine liturgy, the divine worship, the sacrifice in Romans 12 language, but my life of vocation? So there is a reorientation because of this radical grace. I don't mean, you know what I mean? Don't, don't take that word. No, I feel you, bro. Don't. This radical, wonderful, undeserved, unending love of God to us so that I don't have to come to church to please him. I go there to get from him. And my true worship, my true liturgy is in my vocation Monday through Saturday. So if you are going to talk about the sacrifice of the Mass, we would think about that as the vocational. So those are your three options. Flat out through the priest, unbloody sacrifice of Jesus, my worship is about, not really about me, it's about, about worshiping God, but it's really about you. Right. Third is, your true worship is in your vocation, and Sunday morning is when I go and get from God. Yeah, I would say three, I would say yeah, that's how that's Paul a, uses worship yeah, in the epistles. Yeah. Okay, so this is a good transition to uh, Desiderio Desiradavi. Desideravi. Desideravi. Um, which is the apostolic letter of the Holy Father Francis. Uh, it is... Um, the, or as I prefer to say, the Roman Catholic Church. Right. We did find out, if, you're, if you didn't listen to the last episode, that there is, there is not a um, bishop, of, a Lutheran, Lutheran bishop of Rome, but he's called a dean. Well, we're working on one. 
uh, we could rightfully call him bishop, right? But that probably would not be in fellowship and affiliation with our. So I think we should start a church in Rome and you would call yourself the Bishop of Rome, rightfully so. You would say Bishop of Rome of the Lutheran Church, like in small letters of the Lutheran and Church. And I think just synodically, we could even like rotate by the yeah, year. Like right, everybody takes their, takes their turn. So this is a document, uh, 17, 18 pages long, if you, if you cut and paste it into the, um, into the old uh, uh, Microsoft Word, which I did to highlight things. You would read this and you would go, there are times if you took out all the Mary stuff, and you took out one reference to ex opera operata, you'd be yeah. like, this guy's probably Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Um, no one has earned a place at the supper. All have been invited. Um, language that is v- a lot very, that. very gospel. Uh, like, what are you talking about? There's no way you did anything for this. Right. Which we are accustomed to thinking about the Roman Catholic Church as in, yes, Jesus loves you, but then you have to do this. Um, you do not find that in this document. No. And so, so just as background, again, I think we mentioned in the last episode, <clears throat> the title, Desiderio Desideravi, comes from Desiderio Desideravi, hoc pascam manducare vulpiscum antiquam patia. And that's Jesus in Luke twenty two fifteen. 15. I'm saying I've eagerly desired, uh, desired to sell the, uh, celebrate this Passover, or eat this Passover with you before I suffer. <clears throat> um, so this is, centered in even in a Lutheran way um, it's not just centered in uh, the celebration of the Eucharist but particularly um, in Jesus words about the eating of the, what is taking place in the uh, the uses if we're going to use mm-hmm. formal conquered language um, of the supper in the the manducatio the the eating of the of the supper, so even that Francis keeps coming back to in a in a particularly um, Lutheran-sounding way. Yeah, some things I like about it, and then I'd like to throw you uh, something something I think profound is the idea of encountering, <coughs> right? Which we totally miss in our in our modern world. Um, you were in, God desired this, as you said. He he invited you to this. Um, he attacks what he calls neo-Pelagianism, which is not exactly semi-Pelagianism, <coughs> but um, I mean, he, he flat out says this presumption of salvation earned through our own efforts. That's yeah. crazy. Which he opposes to the opposite ditch of Gnosticism. Yeah, and I want to get back to that Gnosticism, but he uses the I word formation, um, and he's saying this this curbs our enthusiasm. This keeps us doctrinally sound. Um, all of these things that we have talked about when it comes to the benefits of, of worship, um, again, to our main point of last time, that this is about more than just Roman Catholic versus Protestant or even the Tridentine Mass versus the Novus Ordo. This is something that is a part of our, our philosophical era. Right that there is a reason why there's liturgical renewal, a renewal in vocation, a renewal in uh, theology of suffering for us, the theology of the cross, among other things, across Christendom, or Christianity. It's probably a more politically correct way of saying it. 
um, that, and, and because of that, I think it's helpful and maybe even important for us to keep our ear to the ground with both what the Protestants are thinking and what the Roman Catholic Church is thinking. Yeah, and I think that is a big theme that goes through while he notes this as Pelagianism or Gnosticism, which he references speaking about in other documents too, which makes me want to dig a little. Um, he has a real fear um, that the Supper, uh, or the Mass to use his term, becomes subject to passing winds or fad or any one age, um, and, and something he says a couple times, or to any ideology. Uh, and I thought that was powerful. I thought that was important that that he mentions that because I think that is a temptation in every age that our ideologies shape how we see what God is doing in the divine service rather than what God is doing in a divine service protecting us um, from ideologies becoming idolologies, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I, I think he has his finger on something there as well. And when he does refer to, I mean, we would still like a little bit more language of, please save the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. Can right? I say one Mary thing that I did actually think was yeah, kind of right. cool? So, and um, I know we differ a little. I'm like, Mike's always, he'll come in my office and I'll be praying to Mary and he'll be like, don't do that. Wait, stop that. Stop and, that. You know, so I do. <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm not praying to Mary in my office. Uh, but he does note when he's talking about that how foolish it is to think of the supper as merely just representation or like a putting on a play about what happened. He says, it would have made no sense and no one would have been able to think of staging, especially before the eyes of Mary, the mother of our Lord the highest moment of the life of the master. Yeah. And I think we sometimes do forget that, right? Mary's there at Pentecost. Yeah. Mary's with the apostles. And it would have been kind of foolish, like in front of his mom who lost her kid, to be like, let's put on a little play. Mm -hmm. And this symbolizes this. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, and when he does throw in Mary later, it's almost like he feels like, the senses is almost like he feels like he yeah. has to. It, it it seems out of place. And his ex opera operato comment was like, I think he's to be somewhat charitable. Like he's saying, it's not magic. Yeah, it it happens because the, the by itself, like you, we don't need you. Yeah. Right. Um, it was a good concern, but it, yeah. yeah. I I think a couple things then that are a little bit deeper. He talks about the art of celebrating that you talked about too. That this uh, there there is something there that we. These are the. It reads as somebody who's been very, has been very thoughtful about this, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the deepest we get is read the black, read do the red, and and we we just hope that that's that that's what the pastor does instead of doing something you know adding his own flourish, but he's talking about this deep sort of like you're presiding over the mysteries, um, again, which you said just the orientation like before being a show, but also the danger of dressing up for church, right? Like we, we make fun of people who like all of a sudden they, they have a English accent when they're presiding, that kind of thing. I think you can have a presiding voice. Yeah. Um, and on the flip side, he warns against, he says, the people deserve these things, right? There's the mass ought to be observed with reverence yeah. and there's things that need to be done because we did the um, prisoner's bill of rights, yeah, right? That's what we're, the people, is our language. Yeah. they have a right to these things. And so I thought there was a good balance there of like, I'm not saying like 
that you shouldn't be overly formal by that. I don't mean that we should just pick and choose what we want to do. Like this is the people on a, you know, basic level have a right to expect these. Now, what he might think they have a right to expect might be a little bit different Mm -hmm. than what we articulated in the prisoner's bill of rights, but the the thought is similar. But it's a good way to think like, do I as an individual pastor really have the right to say, you're not allowed to have access to this means of grace? That, that, to phrase it that way. Or you I, can have access to it, but only after I have made it, treated it with complete frivolity yeah. and disrespect. So this, I think, attitude, which we see across Christendom, this is, my, this is kind of a point that we've been making, um, makes sense after a hyper-individualistic, disenchanted modern age. So another big point is like the idea of symbols and he's not, he's not talking about like, okay, you have to have all these symbols here and then it's fun to figure out what would just the idea that you can say something that has a deeper meaning. Can we, can we talk about those things? Because we lose something when we have atomized everything down to it's Yeah. And symbol is more than just, um, representing an abstraction, but to some degree symbol as like, um, making that abstraction present, like yeah. the <clears throat> symbol as recognizing the importance of the metaphysical. Mm-hmm. That it's not just here now. Can I throw two? Let, let me mean one to point. Yep, go ahead. To that point, we do this in our culture, but we do it in a capitalistic way, and we call it a brand. That when I see a Nike swoosh, that is not just oh, I think about the Phil Knight and headquarters in Portland. I think about something beyond Michael that. Jordan, I think. Meta, it's metaphysical in yep. that sense. So we do do this, but we do it in a consumer-minded way, yeah. which we've talked about how this is sort of kind of, you know, this is where your gods are. This is where your calendar, this is where your worship is, that kind of thing. And we have, we have lost that when our churches are, are, are playing, when our churches the most we've ever thought about any art is our actual logo instead of something like a work of art actually is going to say something beyond just right. We're fancy drawn into something deeper. Yeah. Uh, something that kept striking me as I read this too was um, I think one of Luther's most important contributions is the sacramentality of the word, mm-hmm. right? That, that the word itself is, um, it does what it says. Um, it manifests God, right, in, in what's taking place. Um, but there was times where he gets really close to sounding like Luther on some stuff. And I think what he does well with that and what he opposes, and this is another thing we've talked about a lot, and I think this is something that Protestants are do more um, injuriously than Roman Catholics in modernity, um, especially with the main line, you know, in the 20th century, is uh, where faith b- becomes mere abstraction. <clears throat> and the word is kind of just like, um, like if, if someone were to view music as just notes on a page and not recognize that the music actually does something mm-hmm. to you, like it, you find yourself swaying or it makes you happy or sad, it, the music can lead you into war, right? Um, and so 
just two things I'd like to read, and then I'll throw it to you, and we can see what you think. Um, paragraph 41, he says, From all that we have said about the nature of the liturgy, it becomes clear that knowledge of the mystery of Christ, the decisive question for our lives, does not consist in a mental assimilation of some idea, but in real existential engagement with his person. Mm-hmm. Almost sounds a little Kierkegaardian there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in paragraph 42, he says, The liturgy is done, this is the second line, the liturgy is done with things that are the exact opposite of spiritual uh, abstractions. And he sounds like Mike Berg here. Mm-hmm. Bread, wine, oil, water, fragrances, fire, ashes, rock, fabrics, colors, body, words, sounds, silences, gestures, space, movement, action, order, time, light. The whole of creation is a manifestation of the love of God. And when that same love was manifested in its fullness in the cross of Jesus, and that's a powerful line, all creation was drawn toward it. So the connection of incarnation, sacrament, liturgy, art, all of those things, which is, this is, this is, this is what people are talking about, not just in the church, but outside the church right now because of our time. And I think it's, this is why I've, I've consistently said this is a very unique opportunity for sacramental incarnational theology. I liked uh, paragraph 50 where he talked about the difference between being an artisan and an artist, right? An artisan is technique is enough for the artisan, but for the artist, in addition to technical lo- knowledge, there, there has also to be inspiration, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a positive form of possession. Um, I thought that's where you were going to go, but he's talking about the art of art of liturgy and celebrating too. That it's not just, not just you say the right things. Um, that there there is an art to it. Um, and he doesn't mean unnecessary flourishing, right? He is talking about how do you how do you set the stage for your coming into the presence of God, where you can rightfully sing with Isaiah's angels, holy, holy. I am man of unclean lips. Yeah, and then on the flip side, he continues in fifty one, um, towards the second half. Um, it is not so. This is for the the hearer, the listener. It is not a question of following a book of liturgical etiquette. It is rather a discipline, and he has that in quotations, which is, if observed authentically, forms us. So that for the person coming to, there's that same inspiring, in the sense of animating, what is taking place for the hearer or the listener there. It's not just going through the motions in the right way, mm-hmm. um, but there's both a cognitive, a mental uh, an emotive, and I would say the will is being worked on as well, uh, volitional, um, this kind of conjunction of things that are that are taking place. And as with any discipline, well, how do you grow in it? By experiencing mm-hmm. it, um, which is part of, while it, he'll advocate for it, some things are always there or ought always be there, um, is because it's a dis- discipline that I grow into them. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, it was really interesting that he, he almost, like you said, uh, haphazard, not haphazardly, but almost off the side says, as we all know, it, there's two sides, you know, the, the Neo-Pelagianism and Gnosticism. I'm like, whoa, 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 what do you mean by that? Which, as you said, makes say, he's probably written about this before, but 
Um, the second half of paragraph 17, I think, was really interesting when he's talking about Gnosticism. He says, the first, Gnosticism, shrinks Christian faith into a subjectivism that ultimately keeps one imprisoned in his own or her mm-hmm. own thoughts and feelings. I, that's powerful so stuff. Such a hyper-individualistic. And, and that, if, if you would say like that, if you would have phrased that in a different way, right, that the faith is about you, the subject, and you finding your own way, the journey is a Gnostic, Gnostic phrase, all this kind of stuff, most of us would go right on, right, yeah. from our American experience. And he uses the word imprison there, and I think that's really, you can imprison yourself into this being curved inward, Augustinian-type uh, language, into your own, um, your own echo chamber, um, your own, your whole existence is, is about yourself and however you're going to define the good life, the success or whatever. Uh, you cut yourself off from your community, but you also cut yourself off from people forming you. Um, you cut yourself off from experiencing things like love and joy to its fullest, compassion, all of those things. And when you're left all alone with your own thoughts and your own empty head, that's not just on, only a lonely place, that's a very dangerous place, right? So just the fact that he's writing about liturgy in the context of worship wars, and he doesn't even for a second just start going, oh, it's about, you know, your taste, whether you like something new or old, let's all get along. But, but that he, he naturally is going to talk about formation, and he is going to talk about um, not just doctrinal things like here's what the Manichaeans are all about, but like what affects us right now as individuals and a group in this late capitalistic modern world uh, is really, I don't know, I, I just, it's time for us to maybe get over our arrogance and actually maybe think about these things a little bit, even if it, it doesn't come with Concordia Publishing House or Northwestern Publishing House symbol on the on the binding, right? And with that said, we you read with, you know, with discerning eyes. Yeah. Uh, well, and even we're not. We're, we've all been about that. Like you, you read widely, and you don't just swallow things as just because somebody wrote a book that they that that they are speaking truth and the whole truth. And it ought to be a reminder for us, not a reprimand, but a very healthy reminder sometimes when we can hear this so clearly spoken um, of how we maybe take for granted our own hearing or speaking of it in our circles. And maybe to step back and reassess this powerful thing that really ought to animate my Christian life or ministry is it is it still doing so? And to give thanks, as Paul right, says in his epistles, whenever Christ is being preached. Along those lines, too, just I'll share this, and then I'll, I'll let you wrap up how you want. <clears throat> um, but I thought it, it was a neat way of getting where we would take issue with how Roman Catholicism likes to make precepts where there ought to be Christian freedom. But he hits on why there's a precept here, and I thought it was interesting how he puts it. <clears throat> Paragraph 65. As the time may knew by the mystery of his death and resurrection flows on every eighth day, 
Sunday becomes the eighth day mm-hmm. with new creation. The church celebrates in the Lord's Day the, the event of our salvation. Sunday, before being a precept, which it is in the Roman church, is a gift that God makes for his people. And for this reason, the church safeguards it with a precept. And I thought, you know, Francis, I disagree in a sense with the, the church law. But you know what? That's You just put that pretty darn yeah. well for me as an outsider to understand, the put the best construction on what's going on there. I saw you smile. You must have marked that one too. No, I was just thinking about calling him Frank. <laughs> like, why didn't you just call him Frank? Um, to his credit, he, Francis gets bashed a lot and sometimes deservedly so, but yeah. as um, kind of being this unclear or lukewarm or kind of eh guy, this... I, I thought this document was very clear. There was depth to it, um, and it was very Christ-centered. This yeah. wasn't somehow like, and Francis gets accused of kind of being, he's just going to go along with the winds and the mm-hmm. culture. There's a clear call here yeah. beyond culture. Right. This is a this is a rising up above <laughs> the above the noise in a, in a in a I think a leadership way. Um, I'll end it. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. We need I, to do that I, at some point. I just think that. This may be off-putting for some people that we would take so much time to even bother with a, with an apostolic letter from the Bishop of Rome. And we've made the point, like, it's good for us to, to, to have our ear to the ground and stuff like this. But can we take a step back and first, when somebody comes out and says something beautiful about the gospel, we rejoice in that. Yeah. And, and even our own language and is... yes, some of the words we could parse and go... Yeah. Does he really mean that word exactly how we mean it? But. but just, and even in our own way, we have to, for in the last hour ourselves, saying, you know, we have to force ourselves to be charitable. Like, can we step back and just really take a nice, relaxing, fulfilling, at peace look that there is one holy Christian church? Yeah. And reaffirm then that this liturgy is one of the best gifts that we have been given because it does curb our enthusiasm. That here is the Bishop of Rome talking about the gospel in the same way that we are. Uh, this this doesn't happen very often. See, he, I'm, I'm falling back into it, not being charitable. But can we just rejoice instead of saying, well, a broken clock's right at least twice a day actually be rejoiced that Christ works through sinners like us in every denomination. And I think to hope that when worship comes up in our circles and there's worship wars, that if the Roman Catholic Bishop of Rome can manage to hit what we would consider for him and for his church body a real gospel-centered sweet spot, uh, that, that that can be our hope and intention and desire in our own circles as well. Yeah. And I think we, we do balance the idea of freedom and shepherding, right? Um, my Remember my freedom just to do whatever I want is not probably really freedom. And that uh, we are charitable with our pastors who, if they have done it thoughtfully, said, you know what, maybe I don't want to go down that road. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, pushing our pastors to say, I need to have the gospel, right? 
I need to have the gospel. And, and that, I, I want there to be a theology behind what we yeah. do. And that for our pastors that take a look at this. You are free to do so um, and, and learn something from there, from the best that is out there, even if it doesn't, it doesn't always come from our circles. Uh, it'll help you think at the very least. And I do think, like you said, if they took out the Mary and some of the other, yeah. they published it on the Synod website. Uh, some people wouldn't even raise an eyebrow. Right. They would have gone, this is... This is pretty darn good. So uh, this is all about freedom, right? And the gospel gives us freedom. That's the only thing that gives us freedom. And the liturgy... Um, that and the troops. <laughs> the liturgy is this uh, beautiful case that, that carries the jewel of Christ's body, blood, washing, absolution, and, of course, his word delivered to us. This is this is what freedom is. So whatever you do, please do it with thoughtfulness and, and don't let us get in the way. Let the bird fly. Another round, another round, another round. Oh, 